So you may or may not have noticed um, that Gil and I are a little different. Yeah. And I'm not just saying this because he's not there. I'd say this right to his face. Um, <clears throat> we, uh, we have very different approaches to oatmeal. <laughs> and I personally feel like he's playing it a little bit fast and loose with your oatmeal. <laughs> In order to sit, the 6 a.m. sit, he comes and sits, and he got to kind of get down there pretty fast and get boiling water from the tea station to uh, to get get it going right away, right when Sangha service starts. And uh, if the timing all goes well, it's done at about 6.59, yeah. And um, through the whole thing, he's super chill. <laughs> I show up at 5.45. put on my apron and start worrying. And you, you think that I couldn't mess up oatmeal, but you lack imagination. And um, I basically worry your oatmeal into existence. Checking on the fire, reading the water ratio many times. And um, if, you, if you taste fear in the oatmeal, <laughs> that's, that's me. <laughs> yeah. All of that is the... Uh, the preface to today's topic. Uh, um, restlessness, worry. So, we, we think, generally, we think we do things because we need to do them and things need doing, but um, we think we do them because they need doing, but part of why they seem to to need doing is because the alternative of doing nothing is kind of grim. Yeah. And um, sometimes I've... Um, I've received a kind of a meditation instruction that's something like do nothing. Yeah. Like really do nothing. Anytime you notice that you're intentionally doing something, doing something with your attention, even bringing your attention to the anchor, breath, body, anytime you notice you're doing something, drop that intention. 
And of course, there are some things that we find, well, we're, we're not doing, they're just going. But um, one of the implications of those sort, sorts of practice is that we're, we're doing a lot. We're doing a lot to the moment. And the impulse to do something to the moment runs deep. And so um, we start to to recognize the the ways we recapitulate busyness yeah, in our practice. In the same way we structure time and scaffold this hour into that one. And uh, a lot of practice is actually what, not what we start doing, but what we stop doing. And um, the Buddhist path actually is a lot about stopping And before, before we do something, of course, we need to do lots of things. Just to be here together, a million things have to happen. A million things are happening. All the, the wheels under the ship, yeah, they're moving. Um, we have to do lots of things, but before we do something, it's good to be okay doing nothing. Because the, when we're okay actually doing nothing, when we do something, we do it well. So um, a century ago, um, Freud said, anxiety is a riddle whose solution would throw a flood of light on our whole mental existence. And uh, indeed, it, it said um, that restlessness, this kind of tumbling energy, this leaning, tumbling forward, um, that's said to be with us until very deep into the path of freedom. So, so what, what is this kind of ambient restlessness? We actually have to stop to even see it. Yeah. And um, in, in samsara, in this realm, uh, so this, this kind of... Um, just our world, our world, but with, I use that word samsara to emphasize the kind of uh, first noble truthness of it. And, um, and in samsara, there's, there's this sense that there um, kind of like must always be another item on the menu. Yeah that there's always something to fix, that the moment always feels 
maybe just subtly, but subtly incomplete. That's maybe another, a kind of synonym for uh, for dukkha, for suffering or unsatisfactoriness. Maybe we say incompletion. Not bad, just incomplete. And um, in our restlessness, in our agitation, there's there's a sense of um, sense of being kind of stuck in time, sandwiched uncomfortably between past and future, and a sense of that that kind of tumbling energy becoming sense of um, yeah of being out of joint of something missing a sense of like kind of some idealized version of myself is just out there not quite within my reach but it feels like almost almost and when am I going to catch up with them And so there's a this kind of disjointedness in that. And um, ignorance is, is often said to be the, the root of suffering, that kind of like base ground condition for the arising of suffering, that it's it's the failure to to know something, to perceive something, to to recognize truth. And um, and I get that. That's it's certainly true. If we're if we're confused about basic features of human life, it's very difficult to be deeply happy. And so I get the the potency of ignorance as a force in suffering, but. Um, if I had to pick a force that that feels even more primal, a force that that can uh, deform our minds in a very pervasive way, it probably would be fear. Probably would be fear, and. Uh, um, in this this sense of of worry, restlessness, which is not not exactly fear per se, but in the the movement of the worry and the restlessness, you can kind of um, sense the 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 vigilance bound up with it and the scramble of trying to cobble together a kind of life. And um, the movement of restlessness seems, at least in part, to be just this small creature grappling against helplessness. And we talk about... um, liberating insight into uh, to 
anicca, impermanence, unreliability, uncertainty, that kind of like core dharma theme. Um, And um, indeed when we know we're in a kind of, we're in a river with no banks, where we are that river, part of that river, not separable from that river, we start to know that kind of um, sensorially, actually know that. Anicca becomes a refuge, but in a way before Anicca is a refuge, we grieve Anicca. Our heart um, has to acclimatize to Anicca. And that takes a long time. I don't even know how long that takes. So, anxiety is said sometimes to be uh, a particular relationship to uncertainty. Relationship to uncertainty. Namely, intolerance of uncertainty. It's a particular relationship to anicca. And restlessness, this worry, is is maybe just like our our heart mind, the chitta, like just grappling with anicca, grappling with the unreliability. And we have this sense that, yeah, it's like, it's left to me, it's left to me to um, govern samsara, to shore it up. And worry, worry becomes the device we use to govern Anicca. So virtually every, every desire that we, um, we have, it, um, it includes our existence in it. And, um, what that means is that change, illness, mortality, this um, poses a kind of fundamental challenge to the human psyche. And uh, the priority in virtually all moments is ensuring that there will be more moments. Yeah, the priority is shoring up samsara to make sure that this moment is on a trajectory towards okayness, that I'm going to be okay. And so we're kind of standing guard over our own security, insecurity. And this is our sense of safety, of security, safety 
is always about the future. It's about a, 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 the next moment or some time in the future. And, um, and so, so safety is, is almost by definition about a prediction, prediction, anticipation. There's one, um, uh, researcher, um, she said something like, just, just like our phones are, um, we're, we're kind of, our humans are always on auto, auto-complete, like our brains are on auto-complete. And so, you know, and it, whatever the phone fills in, good day, good night, good, you know, and it's like for us, this thought we have, this feeling we have, this image we have, this sound we hear, it's like, okay, autocomplete. What was that? Where did it come from? Where is it going? What does it mean for me? Quite innocently. And um, said that um, that our brain is a kind of prediction machine, always generating hypotheses about what is coming. Does this moment predict okayness in the next one? And so you see this process at a micro level. Each moment of our practice sometimes we kind of graft onto the story of me, the story of my life, the story of my retreat. And we're compulsively trying to evaluate if the trajectory is in towards goodness or badness. And we interpret and often over-interpret the moment, tacking that on to our kind of autobiography as the next chapter, the next little mini chapter. Where am I going? And we um, are looking really never to be startled. Never to be startled to be anticipating sufficiently that nothing is a surprise, that everything fits into the model of what we think is real and true and who we think we are. And the kind of way that we, you know, the way we leverage our understanding, our, you know, we leverage our past everything we've learned to predict what's coming next. And so in a deep way, we really tie ourselves to what was, what will be, what may be. We tie ourselves to the karma, to the kind of what we think we've learned from our past, which is both wisdom, but also delusion. And we use that as a way of understanding what, what this is, what's next, am I okay, is this okay? And uh, the present moment is just the kind of um, 
the, the way I put, put it, it's like the present moment is just the a kind of the canary in the coal mine of the future. Yeah. Sense of this moment is really just a test to see if it's going to be all right. This moment is a kind of down payment on some other moment. But um, that other moment never comes. The, the Buddha described this as um, bhavatanha, the craving to become. And um, that subtle kind of energy of leaning forward. And that's the characteristic of restlessness and worry, it's hindrance. And tranquility, the dimension of this path, the tranquilizing side of this path, tranquility is about um, releasing ourselves from this flood of becoming, this torrent, to become settled enough that some of the, those mechanisms of, of prediction, anticipation, that we feel actually safe enough so that we don't need to stay oriented in the same way And so a lot of what we do here is we just, um, we're coming down, but in a deep way. And then we're exploring what, what is reality? What does it look like? How does it feel when we are settled? Ajahn Sajito. You're not going to be free from anxiety by getting things right because then comes the next thing and you've got to get that right too. Something's always going to be new and sometimes you're going to get it wrong. So you never get confident through getting it right. Confidence comes through establishing your roots within, at your center. You're prepared to get it wrong. Okay, learn. Doesn't matter, try again. We're natural like trees, rooted but flexible. Trees don't grow in straight rows. Trees like to grow with each other, but with enough space, not too close, not too far apart, but with the feeling we're here, it's okay. Then your roots will grow and your balance will extend because that's the nature of things. Then, as you get centered, the qualities of goodwill, aspiration, enthusiasm, joyfulness start to spread. It's the nature of the heart when you've established the center. Just as, um, as May said, um, be, be still and um, wait for the help to find you.
the a, a clinical model of pain that says um, so that pain pain is the prediction of bodily harm. Yeah, and maybe maybe this part of why pain can feel so unbearable is the sense of it's projected into the future. So pain is the prediction of bodily harm. And um, and so that very moment, the moment of pain is somehow glued and bound to a sense of the future. And sometimes that's important, right? Sometimes the pain is um, is indicative of tissue damage. Yeah, but um, much of it is not. Much of it is a kind of false alarm. And um, got me thinking about, uh, just about dukkha, about suffering. You know, and the kind of the pain that's a fall, the pain of like having your hand on a hot stove versus the pain, for example, in chronic pain, where the, the, the signal of the pain is no longer a, an, a true alarm about bodily damage. Yeah, it's a false alarm. It's real, but it's a false alarm. And it got me thinking about dukkha, that dukkha, a lot of dukkha is less like the hand on the hot stove and more like a, a brain-generated false alarm. And so we're, we're learning to uh, establish more safety amidst all of the false alarms. And um, we uh, we uh, are learning to distinguish what is an actual um, yeah what 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 is an actual actually needs our attention versus what is a kind of. Um, just another false alarm that has the feeling of urgency, but is is just the endlessness of samsara. This is um, uh, scientist Helene uh, Helene Slater, I think is her, her name. Um, Talking about um, what ha- what happens, sense of um, of what it means to to be present. She says, um, "Our main contention is that meditation gradually brings the practitioner more and more into the present moment, thereby progressively abating deep predictive." processing in the brain. We contend this not only reduces 
episodic future thinking and decision making, but also explains more unusual kinds of experiences reported by meditators, including loss of self-other distinction and the cessation of time. That is, if awareness rests in the here and now, all mental processes, processes that involve abstract and temporally deep processing should fall away, including one's sense of self, time, space, and body representation. We suggest that meditation reigns in the mind's habitual tendency to abstract away from the here and now until all phenomenological distinctions stop. Metaphorically, we suggest that meditation prunes the counterfactual tree. Prunes the counterfactual tree. Coulda, shoulda, woulda. The sense of approaching some fork in the road sense of what could have been, what might be. The sense of which way samsara might tip. What I want, what I don't. And so we are dropping in more and more deeply yeah, to the present, whatever that is, what does that even mean? Yeah, until more and more phenomenological distinctions stop. We're, we're, we're doing less and less sorting. We're dropping more in, into this kind of sense of the bottomlessness of the present. And the sense of what, um, could be what might have been the sense of even like any sense of alternative to this moment, the sense of the potential alternative, what that sense of what might be starts to drop away. And to, uh, to do that, we have to stay, have to, in some sense, acclimatize to a Nietzsche, in some sense, feel safe enough, protected enough, tranquil enough, enough sense of refuge that we are okay becoming totally defenseless to the moment. And to do that takes a lot of compassion. To, uh, to 
make peace with the imperfection of the human condition takes a lot of love, a lot of compassion. Just to stay, to stay here, to stay with this experience, to stay with this retreat, takes a lot of compassion. And uh, there's a sense of, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to sort of think our way out of Anicca. And uh, I talk so much about, about dukkha, suffering, because there's something, uh, something about it that is just almost unbelievable, you know? Like the Buddha said, comprehend dukkha, comprehend it. And, but when it's here, we can't help but have the sense that the universe has gone off its tracks. And to make peace with uh, dukkha, anicca, anatta, not self, selflessness, to do that takes a lot of love because, um, you know, I, I feel like before dukkha, anicca, anatta are our insights, before they free us, we, we have to grieve them. And um, that takes a lot of love, a lot of compassion. Was Pema. Uh, so she says, uh, to be to be fully alive, fully human, and completely awake is to be continually thrown out of the nest. To live fully is to be always in no man's land. To experience each moment as completely new and fresh. To live is to be willing to die over and over again. From the awakened point of view, that's life. Death is wanting to hold on to what you have and to have every experience confirm you, congratulate you, make you feel completely together. To uh, experience Anicca, groundlessness in a way that is not terrifying, takes a lot of love. Because um, groundlessness will, will make, us, um, make us love or make us hate. And we're trying to put our heart in a posture such that groundlessness does, uh, softens rather than hardens our heart. Metta is, um, is love meeting goodness, compassion, love meeting suffering and uh, love meeting pain. And um, 
there's always pain. And so you see the necessity, yeah? This kind of care. And um, yeah, a life, um, a country, a civilization, a species, nothing is guaranteed in existence. Everything depends on everything else. Yeah. And that um, that dependency, yeah, we got We want to take that into our heart deeply. And so, um, love and uh, and loss, these kind of two fundamental currents of the human realm, um, mean like compassion is utterly necessary. And uh, compassion, I feel, this, this certain kind of tenderness, this love, this heart quivering in the face of suffering, not overrun by it, but quivering in the face of it. This is woven into the whole of the practice. Um, so much of of the path of practice, the way we grow, feels like a kind of shedding, feels like a, often has the flavor of grieving. And we may not even know what's being lost, what's being pulled out from our hands, what practices is actually taking from us, what we're shedding, but, um, it often, not for everybody, but for many people, feels like grief. And for, I believe, for everyone at some point on this path, it feels like we're relinquishing everything. And so this kind of willingness to grieve is, um, is important, but that is not compassion itself. Like grief is in a way we let grief enter our heart fully, but then the movement of compassion is completely enveloping that grief with love. Yeah. And Yeah, there's a willingness to grieve, but that's not the last word with this. It's the love actually holding that. And, um, and so, so much of our restlessness and our agitation is kind of like, yeah, just, just, um, things grow, the tides of suffering grow, 
kind of often out of this cauldron of just our unwillingness to be with the simplicity of dukkha. And we kind of like build so much out of that because we're always like constructing this timeline and this trajectory of where this moment is going. Is it going right? Do I need to tweak something? Um, because of that, we're, um, yeah, we, we start to make and interpret, often over-interpret the kind of moment of un- discomfort or whatever it may be. And sometimes I, I shared like the kind of thought experiment of like, if I accidentally, unknowingly took a medicine that was not a, um, not anti-anxiety, but like pro-anxiety, yeah? Anxiogenic, just like I, I took something and um, without knowing it, and as that drug onset, the sense of my life would start to collapse. I would start thinking a lot about why I'm feeling so terribly, why I'm feeling so anxious, so restless. And I would try to understand, well, what is wrong with my life, with me, with the people I love. What's wrong with all of this? And even after that drug wore off, those stories that I concocted might be quite, leave a kind of mark in me. I might maintain a certain kind of allegiance to those stories that I concocted as I tried to make sense of how badly I felt in that moment. And those stories would uh, be a way of trying to explain, neutralize, squirm out of the feeling of restlessness. And maybe a lot of our life is like this. A sense of the subtle wrongness, the sense of subtle risk, the sense of the trajectory of my life isn't quite right. What is this? What is this? What's wrong? What needs fixing? What needs tweaking? And it's such an innocent habit, and it's not without its value, yeah? But the way we're always compulsively trying to read the tea leaves of our body and trace out the wrongness of samsara is not so useful. And so we just stay. We stay. We um, bear with imperfection, bear with uncertainty, 
bear with the loose ends of any human life. And, um, and then the stories that we do build, yeah, there'll be richer, more nuanced stories, more powerful. And we'll also know that no story is the final story, that every story is at least a little bit wrong. And so our worry, our worry, worried thoughts, a kind of attempt to to medicate our agitated mind. But thoughts don't really serve as kind of, um, they don't, they can't digest feeling so well. So we feel them with love. And then there are subtler and subtler forms of, of agitation and um, we keep um, loving those to death. As a teacher, uh, Shinzen Young would say, Till the mind not leaning. Sometimes this hindrance is um, is associated with um, with regret, restlessness, worry, regret, and. Um, Yeah, regret. So the way that we feel let down by our by our past and um, some of the harm we've done, regrets we have, and of course this too is a place for compassion, place for love, and just like compassion. Compassion is love meeting suffering. Maybe we say forgiveness is love meeting harm. And that's not condoning, co-signing harm, but it's love meeting harm. Love meeting harm. In this case, harm we may have done. And um, we become accountable in a deep way. This is a path of non-harming, but it's not idealistic and not expecting um, perfection. There will be loose ends, but we become radically accountable to harm we do. And we do that in a way that does not compound a sense of guilt and the story of Matthew and what's wrong with me and why did I do that and how did I let myself down? And it's kind of like negative ego trip, as somebody said. Not that, it's this very sober appreciation. It has nothing to do with the self. It's a very sober appreciation. I did harm and something in me does not want to do that again. And we actually marinate in that harm. 
This is this like we marinate in the pain of that remorse. I, I just I make a practice. I just let that burn into me. I let it burn in in a way that does not compound the story of self whatsoever. But it is still pain. But I let the pain burn into me so that it consolidates my motivation to be careful with people's hearts. And then when we've extracted all that we can from that episode of harm, from our remorse, when we've extracted all of the wisdom from it, we totally forgive ourselves. Enough. That's it. I have derived everything I can from it. I'm not going to try to... uh, get any more from it. That's it. I forgive myself. I've learned this deeply. Yeah, I've learned the lesson of that pain deeply. And then we let it go. And so I've um, said um, this um, work around around um, restlessness, worry, using worry to govern the future. I've said that um, many of the alarm bells that go off in our minds are are false alarms, but um, but not all of them. And so much, um, so much of our anxiety is about not knowing and the agitation that arises out of uncertainty. But we actually do know how the story ends. Everything changes. That's how the story ends. Ajahn Shah's very famous teaching about holding, you know, holding up a cup and say, you know, this this cup, yeah, which holds my tea quite admirably. This cup is already broken, yeah. And because I know it's already broken, uh, I can enjoy. The, the way it holds my tea now. And maybe we trace that out. This cup is already broken. This land has already burned. This country has already come and gone. I'm already dead. Yeah. Just see, see what it does to your heart. 
and um, for me, you know, in the wake of that, wake of those kinds of reflections, um, what's left is, um, is just love. love and um, the question of, of how to spend it. Sit for a moment. 